We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, Yeah, we've seen it before in history. Candidates parade as populists, men of the people, who, once they take the reins of power, show that in reality they're there to serve the rich and powerful. Hmm, who does that make you think of? And by the time the next election rolls around, they hope voters will forget the actual effects of the work of those politicians helping increase the power and control of the ruling corporate elite as the rights and economic stability of working people are steadily eroded. Today, the most obvious example is the orange one, Donald Trump, who talked of draining the swamp and restoring power to the average people, but is doing precisely the opposite, handing over ever more power and control to the richest among us. But far less obvious, yet possibly more impactful is what is going on at the state level in all 50 states. Our guest today, Gordon Lafer, focuses on the increasing power and influence of corporate lobbies in all of those 50 state legislatures. As Richard L. Trumka, president of AFL-CIO, says, Gordon Lafer exposes in his new book the vast conspiracy between corporate special interests and their allies in government to rig the rules of our economy and democracy to favor the wealthy few. Anyone who is committed to turning the tide back in favor of working people must first understand what we are up against. And Trumpka says that means reading this book. Well, the book is called The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. In it, uh, Lafer shows that the corporate legislative agenda is not only systematically undermine workers' rights and advance the power of the 1%, but the scope of democracy is itself endangered by their work. And we, of course, are quite interested in keeping democracy alive. It's a heavy lift. It takes a lot of people. Gordon Lafer, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me here. Gordon Lafer is Associate Professor at the Labor Education and Research Center at the University of Oregon. He is the author of the new book, The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time, and The Job Training Charade, from uh, both from Cornell Books. He has served as Senior Policy Advisor for the U.S. Congress and has been called to testify as an expert witness before multiple state legislatures. Again, thanks for being with us, and I got to tell you, I have some personal experience with this stuff. I served as state senator in New Hampshire from 1990 to 2004, 
I couldn't help but see the power and influence of big business lobbies like American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. You can say boo hiss now, over what should be local and state decision making. Let's start with the big presence of ALEC. Who are they and what is ALEC's mission? Great. It's it's really a critical question because it's a force that is remaking all of our daily lives but is invisible to most people. So the the American Legislative Exchange Council is essentially a, a combination of several hundred of the biggest and most powerful corporations in the country and in the world. And they're companies that everybody knows. I mean, it includes Microsoft, General Electric, wow. uh, GM and Ford, Amazon, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, McDonald's. It's a lot of the, the biggest and most famous companies. The way it works is that about one quarter of all state legislators in America are members of ALEC. Wow. They pay 50 bucks a year in dues. The rest of them, the rest of the expenses are all paid by the big corporations. They meet several times a year in committees where the committees are made up of half state legislators and half corporate lobbyists, where they sit together and they write model bills that have to be approved by an all-corporate board. And then those bills get introduced in cookie-cutter fashion in state after state after state all around the country. And then the same companies that write the bills fund those, those politicians' campaigns uh, put up their own radio and TV and internet ads, and pay people to be to write white papers and appear as experts on TV. Yeah. So it's a very well-funded, well-coordinated campaign, and this is why we see the same kind of laws coming up in state after state around the country. Yeah, I noticed that cookie cutter stuff, and it was interesting. You could just take out the word, the name of the state, and put it in another state, and it's the same thing. So I had forgotten, legislators themselves are members of ALEC, and they must get some nice bennies for that. Do they get, like, uh, trips and things like that? What, what's in it for the well, legislators? Well, so they get, you know, several trips a year to these pretty nice resorts that are paid for, you know, that are all expenses paid for mm. them. Mm. And they get their reelection secured because they have a lot of money coming into them. And, you know, as you, as you may have experienced, um, very few people pay attention to state politics, right, right. and state politics are relatively cheaply bought. Most places in the country, fifty or a hundred thousand dollars is enough to buy a state legislative race. Oh yeah. So the corporate money goes very, very far in state politics. Wow. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I do get frustrated that people focus on, oh well, Trump won. Let's just focus on the next president, twenty twenty. No, people, you got to focus on twenty eighteen Congress, and as you're saying, Gordon. The state legislature, so much goes on there that affects us really directly. I mean, like, what things in state legislators, I mean, I know, you know, there's various issues of of rights, workers' rights, uh, environmental things. One of the things that we in this state have dealt with over and over and over and over is so-called right to work. And that affects a lot of people. It sounds nice, right to work. What's wrong with right to work? Well, Gordon, tell us about that, please. <laughs> well, it is a very misleading name. You know, what oh, the, what sure. right to work, first of all, unfortunately, has nothing to do with anybody being guaranteed a job if you're, <laughs> if you're willing and able to work. That's for sure. It also has nothing to do with anybody being forced to be a member of a union. It's already both state and federal law that nobody can be forced to be a member of a union or to contribute dues to political causes you don't support. What is legal is that in a union workplace, if both the workers and the employer agree, you can have a contract that says that everybody who benefits from the terms of the union contract has to pay their fair share just of the cost of negotiating and enforcing it. And, you know, nationally, on average, if you look at two people 
who are in the same occupation, same industry, same age, same education, and one has a union and one doesn't, the person with the union makes about 15% more in wages and has a 20 to 25% better chance of getting health insurance or pension through their job. So if somebody says, oh, I don't want to pay dues, they don't say, oh, and you can pay me the non-union rate for this job. (laughs) They, you know, they get all, that's illegal, in fact, right? The union has to provide them all the same benefits and even has to, um, has to take care of them if they come up with a problem. Like somebody comes to the union and says, I haven't been paying dues, but, you know, I'm supposed to be paying, paid a dollar an hour extra for working the graveyard shift and I'm not getting it. The union is required by law to represent them, including giving them an attorney for free, if that's, if that's what they would do to a dues-paying member, even though they're not paying dues. So... This means they're the unions under right-to-work laws are the only organizations in America that I know of that are required to provide all their services for free, all their benefits for free, but not allowed to charge the cost of creating those benefits. And when I was in the, um, in the Indiana state legislature testifying about this, the Chamber of Commerce came in to testify for it, uh-huh. and one of the legislators asked them, well, would you, as the Chamber of Commerce, agree to provide all of your services for free to any business in Indiana, even if they're not dues-paying members? And they said, absolutely not, because then they'd go out of business. And I think that's clearly is the real goal of these laws, is to put unions out of existence. Absolutely. They, they, you know, it's been going on for well over 100 years, trying to destroy unions, fighting against uh, Roosevelt's New Deal you know, ever since it happened. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Professor uh, uh, Gordon Lafer. His new book is called The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. And again, right to work, it's nonsense. It's just, you know, people getting a free ride. It's Every time it's come up in New Hampshire, it's been defeated. What about other states? How many states has this uh, 1% uh, lobbying group been effective? How many states are so-called right-to-work states now? Well, uh, it, it keeps increasing. And, you know, most of the states with right-to-work laws adopted them in the 1940s or 1950s. Huh. It was really a dead issue. I mean, the, the most recent one, until very recently, the most recent one was 2001, which was Oklahoma. But then... When the the Supreme Court ruled in the Citizens United case in 2010 right. that corporations can now spend unlimited amounts of money on cash, uh, unlimited amounts of cash on politics, right. this created a sea change in state politics, and things that had been really dead issues and no longer viable suddenly became viable because all that money bought a lot more influence. So just since 2011. Since the Citizens United case, six more states have adopted right-to-work laws. New Hampshire, you know, yeah, New Hampshire was a hard-fought thing. And actually, in New Hampshire, it was defeated in large part because of the support of moderate Republicans who are, you know, loyal Republicans but were against this idea who stood up to the leadership that was trying to ram this through the New Hampshire legislature. But in in other states, uh, unions, and this is really a purple state here where we're coming from, but lots of other states... You know, they they don't. I mean, it's not a real strong union state, quite frankly. But and we do have it's, it's sort of a uh, contradiction in terms nowadays. Moderate Republican, of course. When I was growing up, a lot of them were. But uh, you mentioned the uh, the uh, Citizens United decision. Uh, it's impacted national elections a lot. And, and say a little more how how the Citizens United case has affected the work of state legislatures. And as you said, it's much cheaper to buy a seat in a state legislature than it is uh, Congress. You know, in Congress, you're talking, I don't know, millions of dollars, but 
you know, a, a, a state rep race, you know, even $1,000 is a big deal to a state rep race, at least here in New Hampshire. Uh, so how, how has Citizens United, you know, it seems to have affected so much in American politics. It's, it's had a huge impact on the states. Um, the Citizens United decision was handed down in January of 2010. Within two months, a new organization was created, largely through the Chamber of Commerce, mm. with the goal of taking over state legislatures, mm. using the, the new ability of corporations to give unlimited money. They called it Project Red Map, which stood for Redistricting Majority Project, uh, but obviously Red Map also meant they wanted to change the map of the states to be all Republican. Yeah. And 2010 was the first year that corporations could spend unlimited money. It was also particularly important because it was a census year, meaning that the legislatures elected in that year would redraw the districts, both for the state legislature itself and for Congress. And with that newfound money, 11 new states that had previously been either Democratic-controlled or mixed Democratic and Republican became wall-to-wall Republican, meaning both houses of the legislature plus the governor. And that includes Wisconsin, Michigan, Mm. Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio. And one of the things that is interesting, you know, you mentioned New Hampshire being a purple state, which I know is true, but a number of these states, like Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, these are purple states in the presidential election, but they're hard-right state legislatures. And the state legislature does not look like what the actual popular vote is in terms of the split between left and right, it's all the way over on the right. And that's because the power of, of corporate lobbies is so much greater at the state level, even than it is at the federal level. Yeah, it's true. I mean, nearby Massachusetts, people think, oh, liberal, liberal. Mm, not so much in some ways. It, you know, the states, uh, people do split. And and speaking of Wisconsin, which, you know, I, I always remember it as a pretty liberal state. Uh, but a lot of listeners remember the major fight between Governor Scott Walker, a favorite of the Koch brothers, who had been expected to do well in his rather brief, abbreviated run for president, the fight was between him and the unions. So tell us about Alec's involvement in that. In what ways was it really a big victory for Alec and the corporate interests? Well, when they you know, took over those states, that one of the top priorities that they had in all those states was to destroy the labor movement for a variety of reasons. So Wisconsin in early 2011, under Scott Walker, essentially eliminated the right to collective bargaining for all the for the 175,000 public employees uh-huh. who since then have lost. I mean, union membership has fallen, so have wages and benefits. And most of that money went out in tax cuts to wealthy people. It did not go back to hardworking non-union taxpayers in the private sector. So, you know, this was something... You know, like most law, most people here, there's a law passed in their state, and they figure this. It came from an idea of some state legislature, <laughs> and it came in response to some problem particular to their state. Yes. And what we've seen instead is that state politics has really been nationalized. None of these things come out of the heads of some local person, and none of them are about what's going on there. Before the law was passed in Wisconsin representatives from the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, came and who had been major, major funders of Scott Walker, came and spoke to him. They said, we're trying to create a showdown with the public employee unions, and we want to do this in multiple states. And they did do it in multiple states. And that was a big part of the push behind what happened. I mean, I think 40 or something state legislators in Wisconsin are members of ALEC. Mm. Scott Walker had been a previous member of ALEC, and they got a tremendous amount of money from the Koch brothers. And this was their push. We want to get rid of public employee unions. 
absolutely amazing. And I think about when, when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, I was a member of uh, uh, NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislators. They didn't have an agenda. They had no agenda at all. We had big meetings, uh, discussed big topics, but it was completely different. In, in what ways, I mean, I guess your book, uh, you started writing it uh, as somewhat of a result of the 2010 election. It radically changed the locus of political power. In what ways did the elections of 2010 spark the creation of this book, uh, The 1% Solution? Well, you know, I started working on, uh, I got asked to work on some of these policy issues in early 2011 on right to work first. And then a bunch of us started noticing the same bills coming up in uh-huh. place after place. Mm-hmm. And also started noticing the same lobbies. For instance, the corporate lobbies, when they attack public employees, will say, we're doing this because we want to hurt the struggling workers in the private sector whose taxes are going to pay for these people's Cadillac pensions or something like that. Uh-huh. And then you look at okay, well, what are they actually doing for hardworking taxpayers in the non-union private sector? And it turned out what they were doing was trying to cut the minimum wage, trying to eliminate a right to paid sick leave, trying to make it harder to get unemployment insurance, trying to make it easier for your boss to declare that you're an independent contractor and not an employee and therefore have no right to overtime or or health insurance. Mm. And that, you know, this we started seeing both the same laws popping up in multiple states and the same lobbies doing things that were contradictory, that kind of made hypocrisy of the reasons they gave for why they were pushing these laws. And it looked like when you put all the pieces together, you could finally see the big picture of the ways in which the corporate lobbies are trying to get more power and money for themselves and to lower the wages and reduce the rights of the vast majority of normal working people in the country. Ah, you know, it just amazes me ever since like the you know, 1890s, there's been this uh, you know back and forth between any regulations, food safety, worker conditions, child labor, anything like that. And it seems these guys are back where it was, you know, well over 100 years ago. They don't want any uh, democratic uh, uh, activity to get in the way of them, you know, being absolutely in total control with no rules to protect the average working person. So far, the court's have uh, generally protected uh, people, but I don't know. It's 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 really changing, and and for these guys to be focusing on state legislatures, let's face it, it's a smart tactic. It is it is working. What there we we talked about Alec, uh, American uh, Legislative Exchange Council. There's also the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I don't think local chambers of commerce are necessarily tied in, but there's the National Association of Manufacturers. National Federation of Independent Businesses, Americans for Prosperity. So where, who, who is behind this? I mean, obviously, the Koch brothers, easy targets. How much money is there? And who are some of the interests involved in uh, trying to, you know, bring down labor and, and reinstitute, oh, I wouldn't say slavery, but, uh, you know, uh, no worker power whatsoever? Who's, who's behind well, this it, stuff? You know, it's really almost all of the big corporate lobbies. I mean, ALEC is a, is a place where many of them come together at the state level. Um, the Chamber, you know, a thing like the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and most state chambers of commerce are political lobbying organizations that do this kind of work. They're very different from local chambers of commerce, which tend to be about, you know, being boosters for the local economy, yeah. trying to bring in tourism, trying to bring in business. They're not really about politics so much. But in many states, the state chamber of commerce, the state manufacturers association, the National Federation of Independent Business, um, and then 
in industry-specific things like the Restaurant Association, the Grocers Association, um, many industry associations, all of these things are aligned and working together in lobbying for this policy. And behind all of them are are hundreds of these big corporations. And you know, even things like the Chamber of Commerce and the Koch brothers are members of ALEC. And so ALEC becomes a place, the American Legislative Exchange Council, where a lot of this is coordinated. And it's really remarkable. I mean, when you have that, that much money and that much resources, you can be very ambitious. And so they take on big things that you see, like the Wisconsin fight, and then small things, like, you know, to give you an example from close to you, um, when you when you go into a restaurant with a big group of people, in many restaurants there's a service charge where they say, yeah. you know, eight people or more, automatically 15% service charge. Right. In Maine, the corporate lobbies got passed a bill that says that the service charge belongs to management and not to the waiters and waitresses. Oh my and that they don't have to let customers know that. So you go in with a group, you have a 15% service charge, you figure that's the tip, you don't leave anything on the table, that money goes to management. This is just a straight transfer of money out of the pockets of waiters and waitresses to management just by using the power of legislation. And that's a kind of small detail, but in almost every place of our economic lives that you look, these corporate lobbies are at work trying to tilt the playing field of the economy. That is amazing. I did not know that. Boy, it reminds me of the old uh, line from Bob Dylan, uh, who said, money doesn't talk, it swears. And money, <laughs> money in, I mean, that's amazing in Maine to, to do that. And what power, you know, let's face it, weight people, they don't get minimum wage even. They depend on tips. What, what power do they have? I mean, are they just up against the wall with no options? And, you know, just for example, in, in the, you know, waiters and waitressing, you know, what, what can they do? I mean, they, can they unite and, and shut things down? That's hard to get organized. I mean, it seems like the power of money is just incredibly obscene in changing these laws to benefit a small portion. Well, I would think, uh, you know, I've, the reason why I feel like it's not entirely bleak, and, you know, I write a book like this, and the book is is kind of uh, depressing when you see all these things going on. But um, Of course, people can still organize unions. It's hard, and I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. People are scared of getting fired, and for good yes, reason, because yes. that happens a lot. But the other thing, and this varies from state to state, in places where people have the ability to vote for a particular law through a, a ballot initiative or uh-huh. something like that, a lot of the corporate lobby's positions is un- unpopular on a bipartisan level. It's like the one thing their power has not bought them is to convince people that their ideas are right. So we see in many states people who may vote for conservative candidates for all kinds of reasons vote progressive on specific issues. And to give you an example, last fall... Uh, Arizona, one of the most conservative states in the country, right. voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, and in the same election, voted to raise the state's minimum wage and create a right to paid sick leave for everybody who works in the state. And if you look at the math, there had to be at least several hundred thousand people who both voted for Donald Trump and voted for a paid sick leave and minimum wage. And there have also been ballot initiatives to specifically to raise the wages of waiters and waitresses and people who work for tips. So I think that the fact that a majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, support a higher minimum wage, support smaller classes in schools, support professional training for school teachers, support a right to health insurance and sick leave. That The, the most hopeful thing that I see in, in politics is places where people are able to organize not for particular candidates and not even necessarily for parties, but around issues. There's broad support for, for creating a more fair economy. 
I think that's really fascinating, and I can see why these interests focus so much on the states, because the reality is, as you say, many people who vote for you know Trump or whatever, most people, if you ask them about specific issues, the majority favor what you and I might call liberal or progressive positions. We really do. So I can see why uh, the smart guys at, uh, at, at Alec and others can say, oh, we got to fight this at the state level, because at the state level, the, you know, it's been called uh, uh, laboratories of democracy where people can theoretically participate. Of course, not every state has a, a, a referendum. I and mean, I think most states, you can't do it by referendum. You can't change laws. But it can still be affected at the local level. And local legislators have to be elected no matter how much money they get from these powerful special interests. They need votes from the people, from the local people, the people in their neighborhood. And, you know, that's really important. So I think there's some degree of hope there because you're right. People still want, you know, job fairness. They want food safety. They don't want, you know, children working in, in factories 12 hours a day. You know, people really do care about, about these things. And again, you know, we mentioned 2010 is a big turning point here. Every 10 years, a new census comes out. Legislative districts are subject to, be, to being redrawn. Tell us about a coordinated effort by the right-wing corporate interests to take advantage of this aspect of democracy. I mean, these, these districts, I, I've heard that in Congress, for example, that the districts, uh, you know, the way they've been drawn, favor Republicans. But if you look at the actual votes of people, they don't. So redistricting is, is really important. How, what, are, what do you know about uh, these interests uh, trying to take advantage of the, the redistricting fight, which is coming up uh, after 2020? That's right. The 2020 state elections are going to be critical elections, and I'm, I assume that both sides will try to pour money into it, but one side has much more money than the other. Um, the redistricting that happened after after 2010 that was funded by the Chamber of Commerce and big corporate lobbies had a huge impact, as you said. In the next elections, and several of them, when you look at elections to Congress, I think in the, the election right after that, 2012, right. more Americans voted for Democratic candidates for Congress than for Republican ca- candidates, and Republicans nevertheless ended up with a 30-seat major, uh, margin of uh, majority mm-hmm. because of the way the districts were drawn. But so this certainly happens at the state level as well. But there's another um, another impact of redistricting, which gives corporate lobbies more power over legislators while they're in office. Which is that the number of state legislative districts that are competitive, that could theoretically go either Democratic or Republican, is shrinking all the time because of gerrymandering and redistricting. Yes. And that makes the power of money greater, too, because if you have a district where effectively the Republican primary is really the, what's going to determine who goes into office, mm-hmm. somebody who is threatened with a primary from the right is very vulnerable because they can't say, well, then the, you know, the general population, which is more liberal, will never vote for that person because that's not true. And most, you know, only a quarter of Americans even know who their state legislator is, Sure. So the power of name recognition is not much of a power to outweigh the power of money. So, you know, to give you one example, one of the ways that right to work was passed in Michigan is that a moderate Republican who was a Senate majority leader was opposed to right to work, and he was taken into a small room with a group of big money donors and told, either you're going to support this or this is your last term in office because we're going to pull our money away from you and we're going to fund an opponent to your right who will do what we want. And when the Republican primary is effectively the general election, that threat is very effective. So the way things have been redistricted 
affects who's in office, but also gives the people with money more power over those people while they're in office because they have a threat, a credible threat, to kick them out of office if they don't do what the corporations want. Absolutely, and that's why you know we have uh, the 2018 elections coming up, which are huge, and 2020 is you know not just the president. It's so easy to see the president. We become such a celebrity-oriented country. We forget about, and as you say, these guys, these corporate interests, thrive on people not paying attention at the state level. That they're paying attention. I think it's Go ahead. I mean, I know you know this as a legislator, but. There are, you know, one of the reasons the states are so important is, you know, first of all, ever since President Reagan, a lot of things that used to be federal authority got made into state authority, even mm-hmm. things where the money comes from the federal government. The federal government pays money for education, but states decide how it's going to be spent. Same with health care, same with transportation. States set unemployment insurance, states set welfare, states set labor laws. And while the federal government is so often deadlocked, you know, where they can't agree on almost anything, and maybe a couple of significant bills a year actually get passed. Thousands of bills a year get passed in the states. Part of that is because in most states there's no um, there's no filibuster. So you have a majority, you pass whatever you want with the majority. So the economy actually has been much more affected by state legislation than by federal legislation in the last decade. And I understand why everybody's you know glued to the tv of of donald trump and everybody looks to washington dc but while we've been watching washington dc the country's been being remade in the 50 state legislatures so it's being remade as we're not paying attention to it very interesting it's smart politics I have to say, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, and we are talking with Gordon Lafer about uh, his new book, uh, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time, The 1% Solution, and it is happening. I w- is there a, 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 a process by which these interests get uh, state reps and state senators to promote their agenda? You, you talked about uh, you know getting him in a room or her and uh, saying, you know, if you don't do things our way, Bye-bye. It's your last uh, year. I mean, but Alec also takes care of these guys and, you know, feeds them and gives them uh, nice little weekends, fun party times. What what are the methods used? Well, I think the Alec uh, conferences are very important, you know, because it's not just where bills are are written. I mean, what the the exchange and then in the name American Legislative Exchange Council, the heart of the exchange is corporations fund these people's re-elections, both directly and indirectly, in return for them carrying their bills. Obviously, they try to get people elected who agree with them to begin with, but they tell them, you know, either a threat, we'll fund an an opponent to you if you don't do what we want, or a promise. You know, there have been many cases where there were things that Republican legislators did that were unpopular, and the money people said, don't worry about it. You know, we know it's unpopular, but we'll give you an extra $50,000 and that'll run enough ads to make people forget about what they don't like and think about what they do like and you'll be safe. Mm. So the the power of money is obviously is not to be underestimated. And that that is the uh, you know the key way in which they've been able to get so much done in the state legislatures. Interesting. Yeah, well, money is clearly important and it, it does get more and more expensive as as time goes on. You know, and one can of course, understand these interests pushing legislation that increases their profits is good for their bottom lines, of course. But why would these advocacy groups care enough to bankroll campaigns aimed at, say, a state's Medicaid program, for example? That doesn't cost them any money. That doesn't increase their their bottom line. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really important question. I mean, I think you could even ask, you, what we've seen is corporate lobbies pushing an agenda to intentionally defund Medicaid, defund education, uh, defund public transportation, defund libraries. And you, I looked at it and I thought exactly like you do. What you know, in the well, what's in it for them? when the Wisconsin attack on public unions happened, Kraft Foods was the chair of the Alec Committee on Labor Issues. I thought, what does Kraft Foods care? What happens to school teachers in Wisconsin? I don't think it's just because they want tax cuts by doing away with government services. I think, and you know, this part starts to feel dystopic and kind of scary, but when you look at what they're doing and even what they're saying, I think for a lot of the, the real economic elite, they view America as a, an economy in decline that's going to keep going down, and um, the, the political challenge for them is how do they advance an agenda that is going to make the economy yet more unequal and make life yet harder for the majority of people in the country, but not provoke a political backlash. Hmm. And one part of that, I think, is to lower everybody's expectations, is to get us used to expecting less, both from our jobs as workers and from the government as citizens. So, you know, if we start to feel like, um, okay, I don't have real health insurance, I only have catastrophic health insurance, but at least I have that, and like so far I'm not sick. Uh, my kid's in a class with 35 kids, but at least it's not 45. You know, I don't have any paid vacation, but I'll get some time off between this job and the next. The more we think that way, it kind of normalizes downward mobility and makes the politics of this easier for them. Wow. And what they fear and what they talk about fearing was that they call the entitlement mentality. They're not really, people think hear that and think welfare. Right. They're not really talking about that. They think it's dangerous for them when, when normal people think, I have a right to something just because I'm a citizen. And there's not many things like that that Americans think, but people do think we have a right to Social Security, we have a right to a decent education for our kids, and we have a right for the mail to be delivered. And you know, part of what you see in something like Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. is the worry from the corporate lobby, which occasionally somebody on, on their side puts actually into words, is if this works... And people get into their their heads the idea that they can solve their health issues by taxing the rich to provide health care to everybody. That's dangerous, not just in itself, but it's a dangerous idea that could spread. Because then maybe they could think we could tax the rich and provide housing for people who need housing, or we could have better mass transit, we could do all kinds of things. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see the corporate lobbies actively working, not not as, oh, this is a shame, we have to do this, but there's no money, but actively wanting to shrink the amount of services that poor and working people can get from the government. It lowers their expectations, and it makes everybody that much more dependent on private employers. That is very, very clever on their part, because I wonder, you know, we had a big Medicaid battle here, and I was like, who could be against expanding Medicaid? I mean, to it it it's, it makes economic sense aside from just you know doing the right thing it, it it makes economic sense but lowering expectations that's a very very interesting and uh you know almost evil kind of thing to do that uh, you know theoretically this government is our government it works for us but incrementally uh, changing that uh, the people expect less and less of government because it doesn't really do anything and and you know that way it can be uh, in service to the uh to the big uh, powers, which reminds me, didn't we have a, a revolution against that in the 1770s? You know, a government, instead of by the aristocracy, it's supposed to be of, by, and for the people. But it seems that that is being changed. 
Yeah, and, you know, I think one of the things that is new about, you know, I think you said this at the beginning of the show, like, it's not new to say that, <clears throat> you know, that rich people and big corporations want more money for themselves and, and less for everybody else. That's been going on no, forever. forever. The yeah. Chamber of Commerce opposed the, the end of child labor and opposed the eight-hour day and all that kind of stuff 100 years ago. Mm. But one of the things that's new is the degree of globalization in the economy. And, you know, I... There was a famous quote when the president of GM in 1953 said, what's good for GM right. is good for America. So I don't know if that was ever exactly true, but it was closer to true when GM cars were made by American workers and bought by American consumers. Now a majority of GM employees and two-thirds of the cars they sell are overseas. So you have a company like GM, which is still a big player in recent years, has been an active member of ALEC, has been a partner of the Chamber of Commerce, is on the board of the National Association of Manufacturers. So <clears throat> it's a major force in American politics, but its interests are increasingly separate from the interests of American people themselves, either as, as workers or as consumers. And this is not GM alone. It's now, when we look at the big corporations who are members of ALEC, we're in a situation where you know, it's illegal in America for a foreign company to contribute money to American political campaigns. Right. But an American company, even if two-thirds of its business really is overseas, can contribute as much as it wants. So we now have some of the most powerful actors in our politics who are legally American, but whose interests, you know, it's not that America is unimportant to them, but it's less important than it's ever been before. Wow. So when some people say, well, the corporate, the corporate lobbies are acting irrationally because they're not funding education. I think we need to confront something that is, you know, that is hard to confront, which is that the crisis in education may be a crisis for us who live here, but is not necessarily a crisis for them, for the people at the top who, you know, two-thirds of their market is in China, their employees are elsewhere. They feel like, no, you know, we have enough workers in America. We don't need everybody to be educated. Wow, you know, it was interesting. I was going to ask why are large corporations less invested than ever in the welfare of American citizens? It used to be the case that, and frankly, I think FDR was right uh, in in the idea that, you know, if, if people have more money, if average people have more money, they can buy more stuff. Increasing demand is a good thing, a good thing for these corporations as well. You know, if people have more uh, disposable income, that's better for them. But as you point out, suddenly America is less important to them. That is fascinating. It's yeah. ugly. <laughs> it's really, it, it marks a division also between the big corporations and small business. You know, Good small point. business, which is not deciding, do I want to be in China or Vietnam or Mexico or wherever, but is just rooted in its local community. And just as you said, depends above all on people having money in their pocket to buy groceries, rent apartments, buy clothes, everything else that we do. Those those companies are still obviously committed here and and uh, do not share the agenda of the big corporate lobbies. And one of the things that was telling in New Hampshire when the right-to-work happened, right-to-work debate happened, is that right-to-work was defeated partly because there was a coalition of small businesses ah. that came together and opposed right-to-work. Because they, did not, they, they said, well, we're not going to be deciding whether we want to be New Hampshire or we want to move to Arizona or we want to move to Mexico. We're here, mm -hmm. and we need people to make enough money to, to keep our businesses afloat. But the big corporations are increasingly uh, less and less dependent on what happens in America, even though they remain so politically powerful. Interesting how uh, some of the big powers talk about themselves as small businesses. 
it's amazing to me how they can do that. You know, because as you point out, the reality is that local businesses depend on local people having some money to go out and buy sandwiches or, or whatever. But but these guys, they're playing on an entirely different field altogether. At, you know, it, it seems to me, you know, some of the most significant accomplishments of the 20th century regarded uh, legislation regarding public health and safety, child labor laws, food safety, less dangerous working conditions. Uh, and uh, it's amazing to me that in many states, child labor laws have been weakened. Labor inspectors are disappearing. Uh, it seems kind of hard to believe, but, but I wonder if these 21st century corporate interests are so greedy that they're out to eliminate all these gains of the 20th century. Are state legislators really accepting of such drastic rollbacks? Or they, or maybe they're just not getting how significant these rollbacks really are. I mean, you know, some are and some aren't. And, you know, obviously politics is uh, is a place of spin. So, if you know, if a corporate lobbyist comes and right. hands you a bunch of money and says, and this is going to create jobs, people like to believe what they yeah. You know, what they need to believe, yeah. but um, <clears throat> if you look at both both Alec and the Chamber of Commerce have an annual report where they rank all fifty states on how good they think their policies are, and you can see that all, many of the things that you mentioned are things that they're explicit about. They don't think there should be any minimum wage. Right. They think that teenagers should be able to work more hours. They think that uh, companies should be able to import you know cheap guest workers who are easy to exploit and and intimidate. Um, they think that a company should be able to just decide that you're an independent contractor. I think this was, I think New Hampshire may have been one of the places where this was debated too. You know, if you, if yes. a company says, oh, you apply for a job and the company says, well, we're going to hire you, but we think you're an independent contractor. That used to be, have real meaning and say, you can't declare somebody an independent contractor unless they're really their own business and they work for more than one client and stuff like that. Because when you're an independent contractor, you have no right to overtime, no sick leave, no right. vacation, no right. pension, no right to form a union. But they've been making laws easier for an employer to just decide, I'm going to unilaterally decide you're an independent contractor and you don't oh, have any yeah. of those rights. Oh, yeah. In all of these different ways, we see the corporate lobbies working to, to do what you said, to turn us back to something that, that people fought and, and struggled and in some cases died for to create mm -hmm. these standards. Yeah, it is really uh, amazing to me how they can do that. But uh, <laughs> there's that term, uh, uh, what is it, uh, job creators? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. People buy into it. Oh, yeah, a rich person is a job creator. It doesn't happen to be true. A lot of times the jobs can be, you know, for way below minimum wage in, in Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, whatever. This was an interesting thing that, you know, uh, of, of course – you know, markets are everybody. Everybody buys stuff. Advertising is aimed at every potential purchaser. I was surprised that you found that many corporate goals are actually linked with racial disparities. Uh, can you say more about that? Maybe some examples? Many of the things that they're pushing play out along racial lines. So to give you just one example, Please. the public employment, especially state and local public employment, is a critical source of jobs for the black middle class and has been for a long time. And that's because there started to be some kind of anti-discrimination laws in the federal government in the 1940s. So the public sector was a less racist sector of employment. So if you look at the, the gap between black and white pay is less in the public sector than the private sector. 
It's a huge source of jobs, not just for the black community, but specifically for the middle class. The percentage of African-Americans with college degrees who work in the public sector is much higher than any other group, which means, among other things, every time there's privatization, every time there's an attack on the public sector, that is also an attack on the black middle class. So there are things like that. There are more explicit things, like the corporate lobbies have been pushing laws that make it harder to sue over race discrimination in your job, that change both change the standards of proof and change how much damages you can collect, and make it easier for companies to say, as a condition of hiring, you need to agree that if you have any complaint, including a complaint over race discrimination, you waive your right to go to court and you will settle it in an arbitration system that the company controls. But, you know, of course, big things too, like, you know, one of the one of the simplest things, but that is huge, is the federal minimum wage has been frozen at $7.25 for a long time. Incredible. So this affects a lot of people. One quarter of Americans are now working for less than what the minimum wage was in 1968. And this, this adds up to hundreds of billions of dollars a year that are going into owners' pockets or investors' pockets instead of workers just because of that law. That affects almost everybody, but if, we, if the minimum wage was raised even to $12, it would benefit 40 million people, but included in that 40 million is 40% of black and Latino workers. Wow. So the, the people who, for reasons of racist history, are at the bottom of the labor market sure. also have the most to gain or to lose in general policies that make things more even. Wow. Absolutely amazing. If you just tuned in, again, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Gordon Lafer, whose new book is The 1% Solution, how corporations are remaking America one state at a time. And this is really important stuff because that is what they're looking at, and it's very effective. Your book shows that more money is stolen out of employees' paychecks. That is, employers simply refuse to pay them the wages they are legally owed than is stolen in the combined total of all the country's bank, convenience store, and gas station robberies. But big corporate lobbies have worked to block laws that would make it easier for workers to recover stolen wages. How do these lobbyists defend such a position? I, you know, this was one of the most um, surprising things to me. Very much, Because, yeah. you know, the wage theft, which, as you said, is just people who are not paid minimum wage, not paid overtime, or in some cases just not paid at all. Like, you know, you work for a restaurant, you leave, or you're a construction site, they never pay you for the last two weeks. And there's an epidemic of wage theft in America. And in most places, you know, if, you're, if your only recourse is to go into court, you might have right. had $500 stolen out of your paycheck, and it will cost you that much or more to hire a lawyer to go into court. So right. it's, not a, it's not really a solution. So to deal with that, um, several places, starting in Miami, Florida, Miami-Dade County, created a system for wage theft recovery that is kind of like small claims court or like Judge Judy or something. It's a, it's a very streamlined procedure. It doesn't cost the taxpayers anything. And they started recovering millions of dollars in, in stolen wages. In response to that, the Chamber of Commerce and the Retail Association um, went to the legislature and they introduced a bill that said explicitly that it would be illegal for any city or county within the state of Florida to have any ordinance governing the, control, the um, policing wage theft. And now they failed in Florida, but they succeeded in passing a law like that in Michigan and in Tennessee, and they're pushing it in other states around the country. And I feel like you, you know, 
forget, you don't have to be a progressive, you don't have to be a liberal or a leftist. Let's say you're a right-wing free market person. Right. If there's anything that you believe that you're serious about as a free market person, it has to include that when you work and you get a wage that everybody agrees that's what you're owed, that you have a right to actually get the money that you earned. Um, but apparently not, because they are openly advocating against this. Wow. Uh, I think about the old term, freedom of contract. It was imaginary, actually, in the early part of the 20th century that uh, you know big business could do whatever they want. And if you don't like it, hey, tough. Seems like they're trying to go back to that. Uh, and you know, funding of public schools, it, it's great for uh, Republicans to you know, have less educated people, quite frankly. I mean, uneducated voters are most likely to vote against their own interest and, and, don't, and don't know the power and the rights that they have. I thought it was fascinating uh, in your book that after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans, the Bush administration redirected some $45 million from public schools to charter schools. Why would this be of interest to those corporate lobbying groups of which we've been speaking? D- does, does somehow the lack of public oversight and accountability seem attractive to them? I guess, I guess it does. I, mean, that's I think there are two things. One is there's a tremendous amount of money to be made in the privatization of, of schooling. Hmm. A lot of, some of that money is in the real estate of charter schools, and more of it is in the technology. Part of what the charter school movement is doing is replacing uh, human teachers with digital applications. You know, you have to solve a math problem to make your way through the forest or something like that. Um, But they pass laws through ALEC saying that an online class that has no teacher and has no classroom has to get the same dollars per student as a real class in a real classroom taught by an experienced licensed teacher. And because of that, the profit margins are enormous. So all of the tech industry, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, everybody's in this, and all the big Wall Street investment banks have opened up department uh, special sections that are just focused on education investment, and most of it is this technology. The Wall Street looks at education the same way they look at Social Security. They feel like there's $500 billion of government funding moving, you know, going out every <laughs> year, and we don't have a piece of it, or we don't have a big enough piece of it. So this is, this is one of the big things driving it. And the other thing is what you said, which is when you really look at what's happening with charter schools, and this, is, you know, this happened in Katrina, and it's now happening with Betsy DeVos under um, Donald Trump's Secretary of Ooh, Education, okay. is an attempt to completely privatize education. Yes. And along with privatization goes lowering of standards and ultimately uh, an abandonment of the idea that the government is responsible for providing uh, some decent level of education to everybody's kids. They, some of the right-wing people in ALEC, there's a guy who said, uh, K-12 education is the last remaining socialist enterprise in America. And, you know, it's hyperbole, but in some way it's right, right? This is a big thing that we think we have a right to as citizens, that the government provides by progressive taxation, and the government is responsible. I mean, there's a lot of crappy schools, but when your kid's in a crappy school, you go and yell at somebody because there's somebody who is supposed to be providing your kid a decent education. And I think they want to do away with that obligation and want to do away even with the idea in our heads that we have a right to a decent education. And it'll be like healthcare is now. I mean, almost everybody hates their health insurance company, right. but there's nobody to complain to and there's nothing to do about it because the government is not thought to be responsible for that. And in the private sector, you can be angry, but you can't really do anything about it. I think that's unfortunately what they would like to do to education. 
Absolutely amazing. You're right. And I remember there was one particular uh, state senator that I worked not with around who, who referred to government schools as oh. if they were, you know, some kind of socialist conspiracy. Government schools. Uh, defunding public education. That's really, really evil. What? Well, not that it's going to happen anytime soon, but how might the repeal of Citizens United affect this big problem? Uh, I think it would be a huge thing. I mean, look, even before Citizens United, corporations had, sure. you know, and the rich had a lot of political influence, certainly oh, yeah. much more influence than, than working people, but that's been tremendously exacerbated by Citizens United. Um, and, you know, the, the Citizens United is one of those things that both Republicans and Democrats are against. And again, you see states, I know when Mitt Romney was running for president, Montana was one of the states that voted strongly for Mitt Romney, and voted by an even bigger margin to say corporations are not people, Citizens United should be overturned. Oh, hmm. um, so there, are, there is wide support for that. You know, it's hard to, to pass a constitution to the, uh, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution is a, yeah. is a very hard thing to do. There are a number of states that have passed resolutions supporting that, but you need three-quarters of the states, and we're not there yet. But I, I think that that is something that both, you know, a lot of people who supported Donald Trump voted... Um, hmm not because they wanted more elite, but because they thought he would be a champion against the elite. So I think that that is an issue that that we should keep pushing on, and if if we were successful, it would have a very big impact. And that's one of the reasons why the corporate lobbies are pushing against that. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I wonder... I don't know how many people are getting this, what you're talking about here. I mean, this, this book is important. People need to understand that so much is at stake at the state level. They got to, you know, it's not as sexy to, to focus on the state level, but it's really important. Are people getting it? And how do we most effectively push back, do you think, specifically at the state level? Well, you know, I, I do think that publicizing it, like obviously like you're doing with the show, is important. The you know the number of state house reporters has been fallen by a quarter or something in the last oh, decade. True. So it's hard for people to follow it, and um, you know most people you start talking about politics, especially state politics, and they just fall asleep or don't yeah. you know think it's too boring, and yeah. it may it may feel boring, but it has a huge impact on our lives. Uh, so I guess again I think that organizing around issues is is the most promising either in states where you can vote directly on an issue, mm. or even if organizing, you know, if what you have to vote for is candidates, if people would say, okay, here, we're going to vote for everybody who supports these three things that we think are important, small classes, trained teachers, higher minimum wage, whatever they are, so that you can kind of turn a vote for candidates into a vote about issues, rather than just saying, well, we think this person is nicer, or they look better, or they, you know, did something, and having it all be about personalities. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to do, but I think that there's a lot of, there's grounds to be hopeful that there's a lot of support for progressive policies on an issue-by-issue basis. I think there is, too. And people, I think, you know, one thing Donald Trump has achieved is uh, getting America woken up. And and people are coming out in the streets that have never been out before. And we need to focus not just on, you know, the, the glitz and glamour of presidency, but the state level as well. This new book is called The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. Our guest has been its author, Gordon Lafer. Thanks so much. There's a lot of heavy lifting to do to keep democracy alive. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.
They want it now. They want to get it and they don't care how. They want it all. They want it now. They want to get it and they don't care how. Want that Mercedes, that golf screen too. They want to get it, get it from you. They want your life savings and your mother's rain. Just as better be. 